Cable is proud to present one of the greatest jazz films ever made, Round Midnight. Join us Thursday, December 12th at 7 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater for this 1986 American-French film that captured the Paris jazz scene of the 1950s. Watch jazz legend Dexter Gordon deliver an Oscar-nominated performance. Round Midnight, the Clinton Street Theater, Thursday, December 12th at 7 p.m., 2522 Southeast Clinton. In conjunction with KBOO's presentation of Round Midnight at the Clinton Street Theater, tune in Wednesday afternoon, December 11th, when KBOO jazz host Rita Rega talks with bassist Chuck Israels about his experiences in the Paris jazz scene in the 1950s, playing with pianist Bud Powell, the real-life inspiration for the film. That's Wednesday afternoon, December 11th, between noon and 2 p.m. on KBOO Portland, 90.7 FM. KBOO is seeking a station manager to lead our dynamic 45-year-old non-commercial radio station. Ideal candidates will have nonprofit management experience, the ability to thrive and work collaboratively in a decentralized organization, and the ability to delegate, plan, and organize people to meet goals and objectives. If this interests you, please go to kboo.fm slash station manager hire 2013. Welcome to the second partnership show of Oregon Community Media. Independent community radio and media working in collaboration to better serve Oregon. Oregon Community Media is composed of over 20 local and independent community broadcasters. All share a commitment to community service and to keeping local voices alive on the radio dial. This time around, you'll hear about heating issues across the state. Participating this time are KMUZ from Salem, KWSO Warm Springs, KSKQ Ashland, KPOV Bend, and KBOO Portland. We'll hear about energy policy, where our energy comes from, and alternative methods of heating. I'm Erin Yankee, collator and host for this episode. Stay tuned. We begin discussing heating issues in Salem. This is Stella Schaffer with KMUZ 88.5 Community Radio, Turner, Salem, and the Mid-Willamette Valley with Oregon Community Media. Everyone in the state has had a taste of winter weather now, and at some point our thoughts turn to how to make it warm inside when it gets cold outside. Diana Enright with the Oregon State Energy Board lists the options. For natural gas, and about half of all homes in the United States use natural gas as their primary heating fuel, uh, they're expecting households nationwide who heat with natural gas to spend about 13% more this winter than last winter. And again, this is a nationwide average um, from the U.S. Department of Energy. For heating oil, uh, homes that are heated with heating oil, the U.S. Department of Energy expects homeowners to spend about 2% less. So while um, nationwide natural gas prices are expected to increase, heating oil 
prices should decline um, a small percent. Those who heat with propane, and that's about 5% of all the U.S. homes are heated with propane, they are expected to spend a little more this winter, about 9% nationwide average. And those who heat with electricity, again, uh, the U.S. Department of Energy expecting to spend, expect homeowners to spend more uh, for electricity if they heat their homes about 2% more this winter than last winter. A few days later, I talked with Bob Valdez, spokesman for the Public Utilities Commission, who added a brighter note on the cost of natural gas. This coming year, you'll see sort of a moderation in that. Uh, for Northwest natural customers, it's going to go up about 1.5%. You equate that to an average bill, it's about 91 cents a month. So fairly small. You may not even notice the change. Um, going forward, we expect possibly slowly rising, but we're still going to stay in this very low-price environment uh, for at least uh, the foreseeable future as we experience uh, large uh, domestic supplies that are you know coming online. And uh, the demand still is, you know, we're slowly coming out of the, the recession. Uh, but again, the demand really hasn't ramped up yet on that front. So for the time being, natural gas is going to be a very, very attractive uh, source of energy. About half the U.S. homes are heated with natural gas, and that's pretty consistent with the West. A little over half in the West are heated with natural gas. Much more than that in the Midwest, about 65% uh, of the homes in the Midwest actually use natural gas to heat with. In the southern region of the country, most of the homes there are heated with electricity, while that percentage is less in the West and less in the Midwest and Northeast. For the West, the rest of the heating fuels besides natural gas and electricity there's a small percentage of heating oil used in the Western region, a small percentage of propane and wood and kerosene. In fact, there are an estimated 90,000 homes uh, in Oregon that heat with wood. There are a couple of things in play there. One is the availability of the type of heating to use in the home. Natural gas pipelines are not in every neighborhood. So there are some places where you can't heat with natural gas, so homeowners may choose to use propane instead. And it's also personal choice. Some people have a preference for maybe the way electricity feels when they use it for heating or the way natural gas feels. So there's personal preference and there's availability of the resource. If you're way out in the country, you may be off the grid in some ways. Um, in rural communities, they're not, you know, they don't have natural gas availability. Then, then as I said, they may use propane, heating oil, or something else, or wood to heat with. Valdez says there is a push to add more options to our menu with alternative energy sources. Well, yeah, the, the biggest changes uh, have come from the Oregon legislature. And it's a renewables legislation that they passed. So the, the largest utilities in the state, uh, Pacific Corps, PGE, and the Eugene Water and Electric Board, they are all working very hard to make sure that they get a larger percentage of their energy from renewable energy resources. And the most popular renewable resource uh, that is being added to the system currently, of course, is wind power. Uh, and you see all these huge uh, turbines uh, when you go through the gorge. Uh, and those are turbines, uh, you know, that the utilities uh, that serve Oregon are getting their energy from. So what they have to do is sort of, they sort of it's ramping up. So what the legislature requires that 25% of a utility's energy come from renewable resources by the year 2025. So that should be pretty easy to remember, 25% by 2025. And if you're wondering, like, how are the utilities, are they on track to do this? The short answer is yes. 
Enright says it's not always as simple as simply plugging more alternative energy into the grid. Well, for wind, you need about an acre of land, first of all, if you're going to install a home wind system. So, and you have to have wind data collected for about a year so you know what kind of wind you're going to uh, have coming through your piece of property. A lot of people say, well, it's always windy here, but you really need to look at a year's worth of wind data to know how frequently it's going to blow. Um, there are a number of homes heated with solar. Um, so there's a lot of um, solar, there's solar water heating, there's solar space heating, and there's solar electricity. So there, there is a lot of solar use in Oregon. Um, in fact, we've been offering incentives through the Oregon Department of Energy since 1979 for solar installations. So homeowners who install solar electric systems can receive up to uh, $6,000 in tax credits taken over four years, so that's $1,500 a year. There are also incentives from our agency for high-efficiency natural gas furnaces for geothermal heating systems, so that's a renewable resource. There's a lots of geothermal um, heat pumps in the Klamath area because there's a lot of natural geothermal resources. There's lots of geothermal heating that goes on there. In fact, Parts of the city of Klamath Falls, they actually heat their sidewalks with geothermal in order to melt the ice and snow in the wintertime. There are lots of renewable resources out there. Sometimes you're not aware that they're there, but they are there. Look for residential energy tax credits on the website at oregon.gov energy. Enright says you could get a heartwarming tax break if you invest in a gas water heater, a wastewater heat recovery system, premium efficiency pellet or wood stoves for heating, solar electricity, space heating, and solar water heating systems. And yes, your own home wind power system could be eligible for a state tax credit. For those folks who do have homes heated with oil or wood heat, the Oregon Department of Energy has a state home oil weatherization program known as SHOW. Uh, you can also get information off our website. And that program offers specific rebates for people who heat, uh, their main source of heat is wood, oil, propane, or kerosene. Uh, we provide incentives, a rebate of up to $500 for insulation. Uh, there are also rebates for weather stripping you might do, any water heater insulation, programmable thermostats, a replacement oil burner if you heat with uh, oil, and also any replacement windows, insulated exterior doors, and any uh, testing you have done to see how efficient your home is. You don't have to be a do-it-yourselfer to take advantage of a lot of these tax credits and incentives programs. Bob Valdez with the Public Utilities Commission says the regulatory group is also working to hold down costs for rate payers. In the short run, we have two decisions before the commission as we speak that will affect customers' rates come the first of the year. Fortunately, we have almost reached uh, complete settlements for both of those issues. And for the coming year, if, if you're a customer of Pacific Corp, which is Pacific Power, uh, about a 1.5% increase for residential customers. But for PGE, you're looking at about a 5% increase for residential rates. And this will take effect January 1st of 2014. Uh, these are what we call general rate cases. They come to the commission when the utility wants to, and then they make a request, and then we work approximately nine months to, you know, go through that request in uh, 
very, very fine detail and find uh, any areas and all areas that we can to reduce what the request is. Uh, and that's the case here where uh, for PGE, they came in requesting 6.2% um, overall, and then we did manage to whittle that down a little bit. And overall, the, over the last four or five years with all these rate cases, I, the PUC has literally shaved millions of dollars off of these requests. The way we get at it, it's actually it's like having a trial. Uh, we have their attorneys, they have their attorneys, our experts, et cetera, and it all goes before judges. So you know, testimony and cross-testimony and rebuttal. So that's a very, uh, it's, a, it's definitely a quasi-legal process to how we get to, to, how we make our sausage around here and decide, uh, you know, what the actual prices uh, are be. And again, the prices have to be fair for customers and fair enough for the utility that they have enough money that they can operate safely and operate, uh, you know, consistently and also be able to uh, serve uh, customers in the future. So it's a real balancing act. When you look at that cost and it's still not a match for your budget, that's a bad thing for low-income Oregon households. I talked with David Kaufman, Energy Assistance Coordinator for Oregon Housing and Community Services. He says there's some help available from LIHEAP, the Low Income Heating Assistance Program. Kaufman says since early in the 1980s, that program has gotten funding through federal health and human services. Last year, federal fiscal year, which is October 1 through September 30th, last federal fiscal year, Oregon received just over $33.6 million. The money is sent is delivered to individuals through the community action agency in their area. So we work with 17 different community action agencies around the state that cover the entire state of Oregon. In addition to one small program with the Oregon Health Authority. So this is a program that has some money that may help, but it's not the kind of program where you look to the state, like SNAP, Oregon Health Plan, or other assistance programs. Here in Marion County, the Mid-Willamette Valley Community Action Agency, um, is uh, they serve Marion and Polk County. They're a pretty good-sized outfit, and we've been dealing with them for many, many years. Kaufman says LIHEAP is a fuel-blind system. It doesn't matter what your heating source is. Um, it doesn't matter what fuel you use to get heat. We provide a lot of firewood. We provide propane. We provide pellets um, and oil to a much lesser degree. The big fuel sources in Oregon, of course, are electricity and natural gas, far and away. But in many rural areas, we do a tremendous amount of business in firewood. It really depends on the client. Say in a situation where there's an elderly client that just can't chop their own wood, they can't go get their own wood, we'll arrange to have it delivered. Some people prefer to go get it themselves. So it just depends on the needs of the individual client or the individual household. There's a pretty rigorous process for qualifying. There's a lot of documentation that's required. Uh, not only name and address and social security number, but they have to provide documentation for income. And in Oregon, we use 60% of the state median rather than the federal poverty level. And that equates to roughly 100 and a little over 180% roughly of the federal poverty level. So in Oregon, they have to be at 60% of state median or less in order to qualify. And then they have to have a social security number for LIHEAP. It's required now. We work very closely with our, our Secretary of State. We get audited as well. And HHS, Health and Human Services, audits as well. Program integrity and um, outcomes are, are very important. David Kaufman's Energy Assistance Coordinator for Oregon Housing and Community Services. I asked him how many people are helped by the LIHEAP program to handle their winter heating bills. He said it's a tough question to answer, and the answer is going to change with the passage of time. 
when you think about 30 some million dollars, it, it, it sounds like an awful lot of money. But when you consider that there are somewhere in the neighborhood of about 450 to 475,000 who qualify, and we can only serve about a quarter of that with that money, even in a good year. And as funding continues to decrease, we're looking, by the way, at, at most likely another decrease this year from everything we're hearing. We don't know about 2014 funding yet. That hasn't been finalized yet. But we've been decreasing each year for the last three years. In some years, Congress does withhold a certain amount, a small amount of money um, out of the allocation for what they call emergency contingency funding. And they can redirect that money and, and have in, in past years. But um, last year and the year before, we didn't get any emergency contingency money. It was all just sent out with the normal allocation because the allocations continue to get cut. A lot of people have made a case for years that everything we do is a crisis. The weather does not play a part in our funding. LIHEAP does operate year-round. Uh, we do have a crisis program in place. It doesn't always, we don't always have the money left, but we try to have resources in place, people in place to help find other resources, to get people redirected to food banks or to shelters or rental assistance. And I mean, anything that's out in the community, the local community action agencies are very well connected with their local, with their backyard, with their local community. So when somebody shows up and they're looking for help with their heating bill, and there's no money left, they'll do everything they can to get that person redirected to another resource. If you want to look for more information on energy incentives and the Public Utilities Commission, start your search at Oregon.gov. To look for community action programs that help people on a local level, search at CapOregon.com. This is Stella Schaffer from KMUZ with Oregon Community Media. Next, Carson Bench program director for KSKQ in Ashland, Oregon, interviews Bill Jeanette, the executive director of the Jackson County Fuel Committee, and Jackson Bangs, a hardworking volunteer. We'll join them as Bill Jeanette explains the purpose of the Jackson County Fuel Committee. Well, the goal of Jackson County Fuel Committee is to confront and resolve the problem that we're facing in Southern Oregon in that we have a, a tremendous abundance of natural resources that can be used to fuel and, and power homes. And yet uh, for a huge portion of the population, people just don't have the economic resources to get access to those resources, whether it's electricity, natural gas, or firewood. Explain to us about the utility advocacy program. Okay problem that we're addressing is that uh, utility rates have skyrocketed over the last few years at a time when the average Oregonian's income has stayed pretty flat. The utilities, being that they're monopolies, are uh, regulated by the state through the State Public Utilities Commission. And for Pacific Power, the state has granted them rate increases since 2006 of 60%. So more and more people find that they just don't have money in their household food budget to be able to pay those utility bills. Given that we have to endure harsh winters here in Oregon, uh, it's an especially a problem. Uh, the um, United States government conducted a study recently where they found that for every 10-degree drop in temperature, the average poor family cuts their food budget by $9 a month. Now, winter is is 
pretty much here for Southern Oregon. And when you add that on top of the average food stamp recipients cut of $11 that we experienced at the beginning of this month, uh, we're talking about many people facing a choice between heating and eating. One of the most important prerequisites to being able to win the battle uh, against the forces of cold and darkness. Typically, we'll find out what people's income is. Many people, of course, are not working. Many are working, but they're working in jobs that just don't pay enough. Um, if people are on public assistance, their rent can consume more than their entire monthly cash assistance. And having this information is the first step towards being able to do something about it. Often in the course of the interview, we'll find that there's people who have serious health problems in the household. Or there may be an extraordinary expense. Just to give you an example, we had a um, student come in recently who heard us speak in one of his classes at Southern Oregon University. And his power had been shut off the day before. He's a single dad. He's got children in the home. Uh, one of those children, a two-year-old daughter, had recently had a stroke. And they had had to make an emergency trip up to Portland from Medford, which consumed all of the, the money that he had uh, for paying household expenses. He's a full-time student, so he's living off of student loans. And ordinarily, he can barely make ends meet with that income, but he wasn't able to pay the power bill. Pacific Power shut them off without even the courtesy of hanging a notice on their door uh, saying that they had 48 hours, which is what they, they should be doing. And when he came into our office, our volunteers sat down and found the information out that I just related to you. And once we have all the data on the situation, we map out a plan of action of what are all the potential avenues of recourse that we can pursue. So we list it out. And, and as in most cases, the first step in his uh, benefit request was contacting the power company and explaining the situation to them. Because uh, this is just egregious to be able to shut off a whole family uh, who, you know, the father is struggling, the child had a, a, a near-death experience, and it took a relentless campaign, as it often does. We spent about three hours on the telephone that day to Pacific Power, just going up their chain of command, demanding that they work out arrangements to restore power to this household. When he walked in the door, they told him they wanted over $450 before they wanted to do anything for him. Through our advocacy, we were able to reduce that in the course of the work to $100. And then what we did was we took that problem to the community. We network with many different local organizations. Most of the religious organizations here in, in uh, the Rogue Valley are willing to help out. Uh, so we were able to get that gentleman's power restored that same day by about 6.30 that evening. Uh, he was quite relieved because he looked at he was looking at losing all of the food in his refrigerator since the power had been turned off and losing a couple hundred dollars worth of food there as well as you know, endangering the health of his children. Clearly, the advocacy program is uh, very effective and, uh, and incredibly beneficial to somebody in that situation. One question in my mind is mostly it been Pacific Power that you've had to be an advocate for because here in Jackson County, Ashland City is their own power provider. But anybody out of Ashland that lives in Jackson County is getting power from Pacific Power. Yeah. The majority of cases that we deal with are Pacific Power. Ashland uh, has a population of about 22,000 and has a municipal utility district. It's, it gets its power from Bonneville Power Agent, uh, Administration versus uh, Pacific Power gets most of its power from 
fracking fields and strip mines in the Midwest, and that the whole environmental aspect of it is another issue. But the rates that Ashlanders pay are cheaper than Pacific Power because there's no profit involved. There is a big difference in advocating with the city of Ashland versus advocating with Pacific Power. When we call Pacific Power, we're talking to Salt Lake City. We're talking to people who work for a corporation that's a wholly owned subsidiary of a much larger corporation that's a wholly owned subsidiary of a much larger corporation that belongs to one of the richest corporations in the world. It's a subsidiary of Berkshire Hathaway. And last winter, uh, while we were battling and we had people freezing to death in Medford, we had two documented cases of people who froze to death in January during the cold snap last year. Uh, the profits for that company went up by more than 50% to almost $5 billion. So the fact that uh, Ashland has a municipal utility district where the, the profit incentive is not there to the extent that it is with these private power companies uh, makes, it, makes the rates a little cheaper and uh, they're a lot more accessible. Um, we know everybody in the Ashland uh, utility department by first name. And they are more responsive, and they have some programs that are available to people in Ashland that aren't available for Pacific Power customers. The city allocates some funds to help cover like the last $100 of a bill. They also have a 50% discount for low-income families during the winter months. Uh, I only know of one case in the last year of somebody who came to us with a shutoff from the city of Ashland where they ended up getting shut off. That's one case too many. And we fought that one hard. Um, but, uh, you know, when, when you're dealing with a bureaucracy, there's always limitations. Uh, we've been able to work it out in almost every case. But the fact is that no matter what we do, uh, and even with the more generous programs that the city of Ashton provides, people are still getting their power shut off in this town as well as all over this county. And it endangers the lives and the health of the citizens. Besides the advocacy, the Jackson County Fuel Committee actually provides fuel, firewood, for families that are in need. I'm going to turn this over to uh, Jackson Bangs, who is a volunteer who's been with the Jackson County Fuel Committee for oh, about a year now. Uh, Jackson, do you actually go out and, and chop firewood? Yes, that is correct. And as Bill mentioned, Jackson County Fuel Committee is a 100% volunteer organization, and volunteers participate on Wednesday and Saturday, 8.30 to 1. That includes food because we do feed our volunteers. Usually the wood is donated by individuals around Ro the Rogue Valley. They call and we fill out a fuel donation sheet and they give us their location and address so that on our woodcutting days we can send out wood crews to collect the wood and experience sawyers who can fall the trees because, well, as you very well know, using a chainsaw is, needs experience, so we have experienced people for that. And, again, the work is done at our woodlot, which is a field donated to us by a generous rancher. We ask each person who requests wood to join and help others by volunteering, which that is providing tools such as splitters, trucks, and participating in outreach activities like utility advocacy and phoning session. On average, we distribute 20 to 30 truckloads a week. It can save about 100 or more a month on household heating expenses. All of it is donated, and all the work is volunteer. Lastly, in conclusion, um, Bill Jeanette, 
what can people do to help if they if they can't plug in in the way that Jackson described? We're demanding that the state reduce the the rates with the enormous profits that these companies are making and the tremendous hardship that so many people are facing. It's it's irresponsible for the government to be considering granting rate increases. They need to be reducing them. So we have a petition that we're circulating and a letter-writing campaign that we're trying to engage people in to call or write to the Public Utilities Commission, demanding, first of all, that they reduce the rates, and secondly, that they establish a moratorium where the state of Oregon will bar power companies from shutting off low-income households during the cold-weather months. We need volunteers to participate in a grassroots campaign to make the state government accountable to the needs of the people and put those before the interests of the power companies and their profits. The Utilities Commission is expected to make their final decision next month in December, so right now we really need them to hear from the people. Thank you so much, Bill Jeanette, Executive Director of the Jackson County Fuel Committee and Jackson Bangs, a fantastic volunteer who motivates others to volunteer like himself. Thank you for being here. Thanks for sharing the information and the work that you do. My name is Carson Bench, reporting on behalf of the Oregon Community Media and KSKQ. You are listening to Oregon Community Media, a collaboration of community radio stations across Oregon. This episode is about heating issues across the state. We'll now go to KWSO from Warm Springs to discuss wood heating. Many Americans are looking for a cheaper alternative to natural gas or oil for heating their homes, and they're increasingly finding it with wood. In central Oregon, the winter months can be long and cold, and there are many days where the temperature never gets above 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Using electric and gas-operated heaters can triple the cost for those trying to keep their homes warm and comfortable, and one option to save money is to heat your home with wood, which can save you money in the long run if you do it the right way. Marge Kalama lives on the Warm Springs Indian Reservation, where many homes have built-in fireplaces. Kalama says that stocking up with firewood ahead of the season is what keeps her warm all winter long. I asked her about some of the things she liked about wood versus electric heat. And the warmth, the warmth is a, gets into your bones actually a lot more than electric heat because that's my alternative heat. Plus, um, wood you pay for it once, you burn it, you kind of you can you can maintain how much you use in wood. Electricity you can kind of maintain that too, but you still have a bill afterwards. And with wood, you only have one bill and what you buy, and you can extend the life of your wood if you have to. Gathering enough wood to last through the whole winter can be a challenge. Many people go out in the early summer and begin stocking up for the long winter. Kalama says she relies on help from her family and friends to help her get enough wood, adding that many families work together to provide. I have my brothers and all the friends, they go and haul wood and sell it. And every once in a while, they just drop a load off at my house. Well, we try to conserve so there are t- days when we, we'll go without and we'll just use like sweatshirts and we'll, that's how we conserve our wood. And so we have like one cord. I have about a cord and a half right now. And I hope that'll bring me through to or past, um, hopefully, uh, uh, January. 
And usually in the springtime, if it doesn't warm up right away, then we go out and find a, you know, a little bit of wood, a little bit more wood. And, and then we do buy from people locally too. If they have storage, they put wood aside and then we look for th- other people within the community who have wood. In central Oregon, juniper is abundant and is said to burn hotter than other wood. But according to Kalama, there's one type of wood that is far better and more preferable than those others. Tamarack. Tamarack's the best wood. It lasts the longest. You can put one big piece in and it'll it'll go through the night. So tamarack's the best wood. The hottest wood is um, juniper. So if you really want heat right away, then juniper is what you want. And that, because we have so much juniper, it's probably one of the fastest um, uh, woods around to pick up. So what advice does Kalama have for those who use wood to heat their homes? The only tip I have is take care of each other. Make sure you have kindling. Uh, somebody who knows how to cut kindling, be careful with their axes. A little further south of the Warm Springs Reservation is the farm community of Madras. Like the reservation, the area is cold in the winter months, and many utilize wood heat for their homes and also supplement their budgets. James Yates lives in a home where wood heat is the only option. He shared with me the details of harvesting enough wood to get through the long winter, saying it all starts with a visit to the local forestry office. Yeah, you have to go through the state and local authorities to buy your permits. They're about $20 for two cords of wood, uh, and they give you uh, tags you've got to put on your wood to, uh, for inspectors on the way out. But yeah, there is uh, federal guidelines you have to follow on federal land. Firewood is measured in something called cords. A cord of wood is a pile of wood that is chopped and split. It's four feet high, four feet wide, and eight feet long. The cost of a cord of wood varies on the type and whether it's seasoned or freshly cut. Yates says in Central Oregon you can get a cord of wood for as little as $100 or as much as $250. Uh, I burn about six cord of wood a year in my house. It's my only means of heat is the wood stove. But about six to seven cords to keep my house warm through the whole winter months. The best times of the year to gather wood are late spring, early summer, and late summer. In Oregon, firewood cutting season comes to a halt during the peak fire season in the state's many forested areas. Yates explains why. Yeah, well, they restrict you on the time of day you can go at certain part times of the year. During, during high fire season, you can't cut at all. Uh, the saws are a high risk because of the spark arresters on them. Uh, they run very hot, and it wouldn't take but a spark to start uh, uh, a tree that you were cutting down to get going. Uh, they require you to stay after and make sure uh, your area is cleaned up and you pile everything uh, not all of us at all the time to do that, but, but it, it's, it's good to do that because it makes it easier for the next guy coming in wanting to cut the wood. They have designated areas, uh, say, for instance, for Jefferson County, it'd be on the National Grasslands or up in the Ochico National Forest or the Green Ridge District of the National Forest. Uh, uh, they, they give you plenty of opportunities to cut. They give you plenty of time during the year. It runs from uh, May 1st to the end of November. So you have plenty of opportunities to do that. Uh, or your, your option is to buy the load on the side of the road, which is probably a little bit overpriced. Now, you're also someone who has kind of a heart, and I've seen you do this before. Sometimes, you know, if you know that someone is hurting for firewood, you'll just donate it to them, right? Well, yeah, that's important, especially for the community, because uh, I myself have, have went without wood, have been cold in the winter, and, and wish that nobody. So it's good for the community uh, to always give back, because in, in, in the big picture, it comes back to you. Just like any job, um, there's a toolkit you have to take with you consisting of what I imagine chainsaws, obviously, a way to haul your wood. Talk about some of the tools of your trade. 
Well, I mean, chainsaw's a must. You're not going to go out there with a handsaw and cut any type of wood. But uh, they also require you, when you buy your permits, they give you specifications of what you need as a fire extinguisher being the number one thing, uh, a shovel with a long handle. Uh, and they require these things just for fire purposes. Uh, uh, but, but the chainsaw is your main instrument out there, and it is subject to uh, start a fire if you're not careful. So the restrictions they give us are, are fair. We seem they're not unfair at times because we want to be out there cutting wood. But they're there for a reason, and, and it's a very high risk when you're out cutting sod, not only physically, but with your uh, utensils you use. Yates says though it saves money, cutting enough wood to heat your home for a whole season is physically demanding and not something for the inexperienced. Well, for me, I've been doing it uh, for the last seven years. I'm 52 right now, and it does take a toll on the body when you're my age. Uh, you get the young guys out there, it don't seem to affect them as much. But when you get to be up my age and you go out there and do it every day for seven years straight, uh, it takes its toll, and uh, that's my reason I'm not cutting it to, to sell it to make a living no more, but I'll continue cutting it for my own personal heating uses. But, yeah, it takes a toll on your body. It's a very physical, demanding job. If you were to offer someone advice, uh, maybe they're a first-timer and they want to invest in a wood stove and just start heating their home with wood rather than using electricity, what kind of advice would you offer them? Uh, I would ask them to go to the fire district and get all the information for the stoves, the fireplaces, the options. Uh, they now have the pellet stoves out, which is high efficiency. Uh, uh, but, I mean, the fire, the fire district is where you want to go to find out something about like that because they're going to give you the right codes, uh, the right direction, how to get it done right. All right. Do you have anything else to add, or is there anything I missed about this? No, without the wood, there'd be a lot of cold people in this world. So, I mean, wood, uh, everything stems from wood. Everything stems from a tree in the universe. So, uh uh, we got to keep uh, letting the trees grow that need to grow and just cut the ones that we uh, need to cut down. It's worth noting that despite recent design improvements, burning wood causes significantly more pollution than burning natural gas or oil and could cause health issues in more populated areas. Even pellet stoves burn cleaner than wood stoves. But wood is a renewable resource that, when used in the right conditions, can save you money. I spoke with Warm Springs Fire Chief Dan Martinez about using fireplaces and wood stoves safely. Well, one of the things, there's um, various stages of inspections. What we we ask folks before they even um, think of lighting the stove is make sure it's safe. Um, get it inspected. Um, make sure that it need, you know that it doesn't need to be clean. And the only one that knows that is best yourself. Um, different types of fireworks produce different types of creosols, as central organs know um there, there's tamarack that burns hot, there's juniper that burns hot, and then there's the pine that doesn't burn as hot, and then there's Douglas fir, and those are the four commons in this region. So what we like to tell folks every season, regardless of what you burn, is get it inspected. Um, get the fire department or get somebody that uh, you know that knows what they're looking at as far as uh, the safety of its operations. And so, you know, that's what we do. We want to make sure you're safe, Mom. Yeah, again, a lot of folks burn all forwards at, during the seasons, uh, you know. So it depends on what they're burning well and how wet it's been protected through, during the season and, and if it's green or if it's seasonal. All those play a factor as far as its safety and its operation, you know. And so, again, uh, we ask people to get in inspected. If, if you're not certain, let us take a look at it. Ultimately, what method you employ to help keep the winter chill out of your home depends on where you live and how your home is designed. It's important to remember that the cost of heating a home can get out of control quickly, and the heat generated can also disappear quickly. There are some things that you can do to keep those heating dollars from seeping out of your home. 
Pacific Power recommends weather stripping your doors, sealing baseboards, and caulking windows. You can also wrap your water heaters, insulate your pipes, make sure your filters are clean and fresh, and add door sweeps to rooms that are used less frequently. It's these small things that can add up to big savings and keep you warm and cozy all winter long. This is Will Robbins from KWSO 91.9 FM with Oregon Community Media. You are listening to the second Oregon Community Media Collaborative Show on Heating Issues. We'll now hear from KPOV in Bend. Matt Yates lives in an old house close to Highway 97, the main highway that cuts through Central Bend. It's just after dark and starting to get chilly outside. A lot of people would turn up the thermostat at this point, but Matt has a different routine to heat his home. He heads out to the backyard, where tarps cover a couple large piles of firewood. Matt and his friends cut this wood on public land managed by the Forest Service. And tonight, his friend Joe Klein, who helped cut down some of the pine trees that ended up in the wood pile, helps chop kindling to start a fire. Ooh, how do you like that sharpened ball? It's real nice. This is how we make kindling. Get the axe on there. Break that off. There you go. Klein is from Ohio, and Yates grew up in Philadelphia and moved to Bend two years ago. It was a new experience for Yates to heat his home with a wood stove. I think it's fun. I just moved to Oregon a couple of years ago and never had a never had a house with a wood stove before so I think it's I think it's fun to go out there with saw and tools and a couple buddies and find some trees to put on the ground, cut it up, bring it home and keep yourself warm. It's it's kinda old school and when I found this house and saw that it had a stove I thought that was a bonus. It's been fun for Yates and his friends to go out to the forest to gather firewood, but there's also another reason they do it. Money. The house was built in the 1920s, and Yates says it has little or no insulation. He and his friends cut two cords of wood last year on Forest Service land, which is fairly inexpensive. Last year, I think we had two and then ran out. We had to buy wood, and it was really expensive. I think we paid like $165 for a cord of wood in February. This is, in comparison, very affordable. Each cord of wood costs $10. You know, ensure it's your time and energy, and there's some cost for the saw and the fluid and the oils and things, but boy, compared to trying to pump electrical heat into this uninsulated house that was built in the 20s, it's a huge difference. Wood stoves have decreased in popularity in Oregon, but there are still plenty of people like Yates who depend on them to stay warm in the winter. Many of the stoves are fairly old and produce more pollution, and that's part of the reason Oregon and six other states filed a lawsuit against the Environmental Protection Agency in October, alleging the federal agency failed to adequately regulate emissions from residential wood stoves. The Oregon Department of Justice filed a lawsuit, which also has support from officials of the state's Department of Environmental Quality. Officials are concerned about the health effects of small particles, called PM2.5, that wood stoves emit. When people inhale these tiny particles, they can travel into the air sacs in the lungs and prevent oxygen from transferring into the bloodstream. Larry Hawkins is an air quality specialist for the Department of Environmental Quality based in Pendleton. 
Calkins travels all over the eastern portion of the state, working with communities to reduce the amount of pollution from wood smoke. The purpose of that lawsuit was to prompt EPA to look at these old certification rules because they were Oregon had their certification in 1988 and then 1991 we turned that certification requirement over to EPA and since 1991 they haven't changed those rules and the technology has improved tremendously and what we're a little worried about in places like Klamath Falls and Lakeview is that even if people change out all their wood stoves to certified wood stoves, it still may not solve the ambient air quality problems of, of particulate matter in the air shed. So it's vital that EPA at least have the newer stoves that are being sold have the very best standards that, that EPA can muster. Calkins said Bend occasionally suffers from wood smoke pollution, especially on days when inversion weather traps smoke in the area. But the real problems east of the Cascades are in Klamath Falls and Lakeview. The DEQ estimates there are roughly 2,000 wood stoves in Klamath Falls that are not certified. That means they're more than 20 years old. Well, in Klamath, it's the environmental health program that monitors this. And so they have a full-time employee that deals with air quality. They issue what we call an advisory down there. And if the advisory is green, it's okay to burn. If it's yellow, uh, certain older stoves cannot be burned. And then if it's red, nobody's supposed to be burning. So uh, most of the winter they're able to burn, but on those rare days where they get very strong inversions, they're they're required not to burn. Roger Sanders is one of the owners of a store in Bend called Fireside. Sanders and his employees have sold wood stoves and other hearth products for three decades. And Sanders says the EPA could greatly reduce pollution if it tightened regulations on wood stoves. The cleanest wood stoves that are available today will put out about a half a gram an hour of particulate pollutants, the things that the federal and state governments are very concerned about. So how big is a half a gram an hour? Well, there's two ways to look at it. One might be to look at it from a point of view of how long does it take to accumulate a decent amount of that. And so if you burnt this particular stove eight hours a day, it would take two months to get an eight ounce glass or cup uh, full of the particulates that that stove produced. So it's going to run for almost 60 days before um, you'll get an eight ounce container of it. Pretty pretty amazingly small amount of material. If you're burning an old stove, pre-1986 stove, it can be putting out 100 or 200 times that. If you burn it very carefully, maybe 20 times that, but old stoves and open wood burning fireplaces, on the other hand, are extremely high producers of uh, particulate material. Burning wood is part of the carbon cycle, so although wood stoves create particulate, they are actually a carbon-neutral way to heat a home, Sanders says. Living trees absorb carbon dioxide, and burning wood releases it. Yates says he knows wood smoke contains pollution, but he believes there are other benefits to burning wood to keep warm. Uh, The one thing I would say is that in cutting firewood, a lot of the forests get thinned, which is uh, certainly healthy. Uh, Cuts down some of those small ladder fuels that create the large wildfires. So I don't feel too bad about cutting down trees. And then as far as, you know, releasing the smoke into the air, well, 
it's kind of a, a lesser of evils for me. I mean, we're not tapped into any large grid that's pumping, you know, large amounts of, of chemicals or or byproducts into the air. This is this is a self-sustaining system. I mean, we we go out, we cut it ourselves, we split it ourselves, we stack it, we burn it. Um, I really like that, uh, you know, self-reliance factor of it, and I. I think although you could certainly argue it, it's not ideal for the environment, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd wonder what the best solution was, you know. Sanders says fewer customers ask for wood stoves these days, in part because natural gas stoves are easier to use. There's no firewood to split, no time spent building the fire. But some people still prefer wood stoves, either because of the cost savings or because of the high amount of radiant heat. That's something Yates appreciates about his wood stove. Plus, one of my favorite things is if you come in from a cold night and you're really feeling the chill, you can walk right over to the wood stove and get yourself all warm and cozy right away. Can't really, can't really cuddle up with the heat register, you know. Inside the house, Yates and Klein are piling newspaper and kindling in the stove. All that remains is to light the fire. Uh, just getting ready to light up. Got some kindling in there. Got some, uh, you know, a little bit of paper and some smaller bits of kindling so we can kind of get the fire started. So I'm just, uh, just about to light it up. Now she's getting hot. This is Hillary Borud from KPOV Bend with Oregon Community Media. Our last piece tonight was produced in Portland at KBOO. This is Barbara Nelson, and we're here with Caitlin Perkins, who is the president of the Environmental Science Club at Washington State University. With her, we have Robert Bacon, who works as a sustainable engineer and is also at Washington State University. We'll be taking a look at how our current government policies are influencing the types of energy we're using and how we pay for it. So let's start with how we got our current energy policy. Currently, it is a common misconception that most of Oregon's energy does come from hydropower. While it's true that we have a lot of hydropower here in Oregon, unfortunately, a good chunk of our energy still does come from coal, natural gas, and other fossil fuel sources. What we're using right now is about 32 to 33 percent coal, and that's uh, specific to the PGE area. So our policy right now uh, really supports the use of fossil fuels. Approximately... Fossil fuels are still subsidized about six times more than renewable energy. That's as of 2011. But we can make a lot of changes. Uh, There's actually a difference, though, in how the private corporations like PGE and Pacific Power are run, as opposed to our public utilities here in Oregon. And actually, you know, looking at how our energy is produced, um, we end up buying more of our energy from coal and from outside of our state. There's actually only one coal-fired plant still in Oregon, which is out in Boardman. It's it's on plan to close it in 2020. And so at that point, Oregon won't have any coal-fired plants anymore in operation. But the thing is, is that what we find kind of good for ourselves, we at the same time will buy from our neighbors. So we're buying from Montana and other states, their coal-fired plants. All in all, we need to try to push for a policy to where we're having hydropower be our main source of energy and looking at 
each source and trying to find the best way to use it. If we were able to use sources just from here within the state, as opposed to, for example, selling our hydropower to other states or importing power, like Rob said, from Idaho or from Montana, if we were able to upgrade our transmission lines and use our power from here in the state, we could easily supply the state of Oregon with our energy, which would make it much easier for us to not rely on other parts of the country for our power. And I think that kind of comes from why we buy our electricity. We we end up buying our electricity as as the cheapest uh, component at that point because mm-hmm. we have a lot of independent sources, a lot of private firms. And so there's actually three different firms, two private and one public. The, the main amount of our electricity, they're buying and selling like credits, whereas the environment's not always thought about when we're talking about price and credits, and neither social equity of, again, taking from these coal areas where we know that they're going to be health problems in these areas, and we're okay with because it's cheaper electricity. But in all, um, it's not cheap. It's subsidized, and it's subsidized by the fact that nobody's paying for this health care. No one's paying for the environmental detriment that's happening happening. Can you give us some insight on who is actually controlling what we get? There's a bunch of different um, private utility producers. They're buying and selling it to these three main companies, which were the um, Northwest Natural, Portland General Electric, and Pacific Power. These companies are out wheeling and dealing and, and buying electricity and then selling it back to us. And then above them is the Oregon Public Utilities Commission. The director of that's put on by our governor. And so the governor makes the decision of kind of our direction in electricity and actually all energy production in the state. So one great thing that we can do to go out and make sure that we're able to change these is to write to the governor and let them know, you know, that we believe renewables are the only option. We really do have more power, I think, than we realize as consumers of electricity. We really tend to view it as a, I pay my bill and I just take what they give me. But we can write letters to the editor. We can enact policy change on federal and state levels that will require companies to change how our energy is produced. And we do already have that to some extent here in Oregon. We have Senate Bill 1149, which mandates that utilities like PGE and like Pacific Power provide the option of renewable energy to their customers. And so they currently have that option. 14 to 15% of PGE customers already use it. And so it's a great consumer choice that people can make Decisions like these were brought about by policy change and things like protests, which stopped the nuclear power plant and shut that down. It's really a grassroots effort that expands into something larger, and that can even translate into federal policy. That can translate into federal policies regulating the use of carbon-based fuel sources, and these all start with people in their homes speaking out, taking action, and writing letters, and we can all have an effect. One idea for for changing how we look at, at energy is if we change the demand by making government policy and looking at solar power for our homes and looking at the subsidies and saying, hey, everybody is going to switch over and have solar panels and everybody's going to be looking at doing these these additions to their home. And when that happens, we'll find clean, efficient ones that are going to happen with industry. And there'll be levels of purchasable ones where you're able to buy, even right now, um, panels that are in the shape and look just like your roofing material. There's paint now that 
mm-hmm. is is the solar and so it's not that you have to have big clunky things up on your roof anymore the fact is is that there's so many options use your options here's your subsidies and in the end if we can make all of our residential be just on solar our industry will pay for electricity which is how it should be is let industry pay for it but mm-hmm. as a consumer you know at your house we should be actually funding that you should be selling it to the industry in order for them to use energy to do something and so a lot of that had to do with changing policy it takes us getting over the nanny state policy thinking that we don't want to be told what to do because Mm -hmm. in the end um, we all share this environment if america was all over the world we'd need three and a half worlds just to you know sustain ourselves so we do have to look at the fact that we have to make sure that we're using what is equitable for us. Mm-hmm. Well, and additionally, I think a lot of times that connection between the consumer choices that we make and things like social or health detriments isn't made. We don't really think about the Pigovian taxes of fossil fuels, like the burden on our healthcare system, like the higher instances of asthma in locations where coal trains go by, which has definitely been under discussion because of the coal train uh, discussion that we're having here in the Northwest. And so I think that these social and uh, environmental and health taxes, once they're quantified better, once we can talk to people about how much of an effect these fossil fuels are having that we don't even realize on a daily basis, there would be a lot more support for moving away from them because they are such a burden on the rest of our systems here in the U.S. I think you're talking about the true cost of energy, and that's what Mm -hmm. we really don't ever equate, is the fact that, um, you know, let's take for oil, for example, you know, our our military secures oil for us all the time. They secure our waterways. They secure our, our energy sources as a matter of national security. And, I mean, so did the Romans. The Romans, back in the day, uh, they were a very wood uh, type of of a population. They were taking fleets of ships to go find wood. They'd go to an area and they'd deforest it. After they got a certain amount stretched, and after the wood stopped coming, they crashed. And that was the end of the Roman Empire. We're looking at, at coal. We're looking at, hey, how can we find more oil or the next place for this or the next type of fossil fuel? But in the end, all we're really doing is just stretching out. And sooner or later, all of these finite resources, I mean, they are finite. I mean, But sooner or later, we have to make that decision. And I think that we should make it before we're forced to make it. What are probably the most promising new technologies for residential applications? I like the solar water heaters. I mean, there's some really good stuff there. Even in the Pacific Northwest, you can get up to 140 degrees in some of these systems. People saying, well, we can't have it here. We're too cloudy. All of these other statements, you know, Pacific Northwest likes to say. But if you look at Germany, which is on the same latitude as we are, they did exactly what we've been talking about. They subsidized it. They got it, it, it on a lot of homes. And it does just fine in, in this type of environment. There's so much advancement we can make in solar. I know that Boeing, as of last year, came out with a 46% efficiency panel. And so mm-hmm. technology is improving so much. Additionally, I think efficiency and I think energy conservation is something we need to focus on because we have the available energy. And if we improved not only transmission line efficiency, but if if we put more money into improving the efficiency inside our homes, whether through light bulbs, toilets, water, energy efficiency, there's a lot of improvements we can make on our old infrastructure inside our homes from all these houses that were built starting you know, at the beginning of the century. And so I think that there's a, a lot of possibilities if people just had the help 
the leg mm-hmm. up, the ideas. Energy Trust of Oregon, which um, is a source that any Oregonian can utilize, will come in and audit your house for free to help you figure out where you can become more efficient in energy. And it's services like these um, that will really help people to be more aware, to be more informed, and to be more educated. And mm-hmm. education is the first step to making any change. Well, this is certainly a huge topic, and we will continue this. And uh, so uh, we've been talking to Caitlin Perkins and Robert Bacon about how energy policies affect the sustainability of our future energy needs right down to how we heat our homes. So we want to thank you for coming in and sharing your insights with us today, and it's been really informative. Thanks Thanks for having us. Thank you. I'm Barbara Nelson from KBOO Portland with Oregon Community Media. Thanks to Barbara, Stella, Will, Hillary, and Carson. Thanks to Dim Sums for providing the background music. Stay tuned to a radio near you for more from Oregon Community Media. We will be working to strengthen the independent stations serving audiences from Florence to Fossil, and we'll produce another show together to air in February 2014. KBU is proud to be among the founders of this exciting new communications resource for community broadcasters throughout Oregon. I'm Erin Yankee. Thanks for listening. Cabo is proud to present one of the greatest jazz films ever made, Round Midnight. Join us Thursday, December 12th at 7 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater for this 1986 American-French film that captured the Paris jazz scene of the 1950s. Watch jazz legend Dexter Gordon deliver an Oscar-nominated performance. Round Midnight, the Clinton Street Theater, Thursday, December 12th at 7 p.m. 2522 Southeast Clinton. In conjunction with KBOO's presentation of Round Midnight at the Clinton Street Theater, tune in Wednesday afternoon, December 11th, when KBOO jazz host Rita Rega talks with bassist Chuck Israels about his experiences in the Paris jazz scene in the 1950s, playing with pianist Bud Powell, the real-life inspiration for the film. That's Wednesday afternoon, December 11th, between noon and 2 p.m. on KBOO Portland, 90.7 FM. KBOO is seeking a station manager to lead our dynamic 45-year-old non-commercial radio station. Ideal candidates will have nonprofit management experience, the ability to thrive and work collaboratively in a decentralized organization, and the ability to delegate, plan, and organize people to meet goals and objectives. If this interests you, please go to kboo.fm slash station manager hire 2013. And you are tuned in to KBOO 90.7 FM, also heard around the world at www.kboo.fm. Up next is Hard Knock Radio. One, two, three, four.